from where Joel uh, Baker picked up last, uh, last week in uh, 1 Corinthians on what it is to belong to a body. And we're going to talk particularly about communion. Uh, he talked about serving, using our gifts, being connected to the worldwide global church. And I'm going to talk from the chapter before that where the Apostle Paul is talking about table manners as we celebrate. Some would call it the Eucharist, others communion, uh, the table of the Lord, some call it the host, all sorts of different traditions uh, for taking the bread and the cup. And uh, I want to ask us what it means to have that central to our life together. Um, James, if you could get that picture up. This, uh, this picture is the uh, chapel where uh, Renelle and I grew up in, uh, in Durban, South Africa. This is where we got married. Um, my sister and my brother also got married here. Uh, my, my folks have been uh, members, more like pillars, of this church uh, for almost 50 years. And uh, I'm not going to get nostalgic on you. Those are beautiful flowers, though, aren't they? Um, the, the, the church now meets in a larger auditorium, but weddings and smaller churches still happen there. But um, I want you to see the kind of the architecture of the church. It's very different to this building. And uh, the pulpit is off to one side, and the music stand and the piano and organ are off to the other. And right in the center is the communion altar and the communion table. And, you know, in every church that we've been in, uh, we have to say, man, there were some great things and there were some, some not so great things, but what do we take from our different church traditions that is good and keep with us? And I want to say, man... Uh, over 21 years in that church, often the preaching was a little bit underwhelming, to be honest, and uh, the worship was not generally transcendent. But um, boy, the communion was deep and rich. I remember very clearly every time we got together, turn to page B12 in your communion handbooks, and we would go through communion liturgy, and a worship service culminated in participating in the body and blood of Jesus. And that's something for us to learn from. Our architecture is different, our preaching and our worship is different, but I want to take firstly from the Word, but secondly from some more liturgical traditions and ask, why is it that very often uh, in churches like ours, communion is sort of relegated to an afterthought? We've got a kind of couple tables around, often churches like ours would just do it once a month. Uh, and sometimes if the preacher just went too long, you just, oh well, there's always next week. You know, if you, if you look at a little bit of history, uh, in the Reformation, there was a theologian called Zwingli. And Zwingli, one of his primary things was to counter the view of the Catholic Church that the elements of bread and wine literally changed into the body and blood of Jesus. He counted that. I believe he counted it correctly. And uh, the reformers were all about coming back to the grace of God, uh, to the Word of God as final authority, uh, to Christ and by faith alone. Uh, and that was a beautiful thing. But Zwingli, I believe, took it too far. Uh, the pendulum zwinged too far. <laughs> I don't know what it is. As I get closer to 50, 
the up and up. I don't know what it is. Dads, you get that anyway. Um, but 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 he he birthed this concept that communion is really just a symbol of remembrance. It's not the literal body and blood. Protestant churches took the table, which was at the center, and moved it out to the side and replaced it with the pulpit. The preaching of the word became central, in some ways rightfully so. People, though, began to choose their churches based on their favorite preacher. In some ways, I believe it was the beginning of the consumer Christian, where people would come and consume a sermon and consume some songs, rather than coming believing that they would consume the very body and blood of Jesus. And I just wanna say, I don't wanna chuck the baby out with the bathwater. I believe in the centrality of preaching and the gospel, but what would it be for the table to come back to the center? About 14 years ago, I preached in this church, 13 years, on our community comes from our communion. And at that time, we uh, were only breaking bread about once a month. And I just had a fresh conviction in this church. And I discovered afterwards that while uh, people were taking communion, there was a little faction in the church that was handing around a clipboard, suggesting people sign their names so they could sue the elders. It was a wake-up call that we didn't understand communion. And from that time on, I mean, we went into a horrible lawsuit that the Lord settled, and that was great. But we realized, man, we need to discern the body of Christ. And from that time on, we began breaking bread every week. And I wanna unpack why this is a meal that is at the heart of our life together. We're not a country club. We're not a gym membership. We're not a political party. Our community is fashioned by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And what does that mean in our relationships? What does that mean in our conflict? What does that mean in our mission? What does it mean to our preaching and to our worship? So here we go. I'm gonna bring a kind of a, it's a pretty sober word from the Apostle Paul because he hears that the Corinthian church are not handling the elements rightly. He loves these people like they were his own kids, but they're pretty dysfunctional kids. And he's in Ephesus, he gets report that there's sexual immorality, uh, gets report that there's factions around their favorite preachers, and he gets report that they're getting drunk at the communion table. And he writes to that from Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. 
For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves true, truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. What does it mean to eat and drink, not for judgment, but for great good? This meal that heals, this meal that cleanses, that this meal that unites and sustains the body, this meal that fuels us for mission, this meal that enables us to commune with Christ himself. What does it mean to eat and drink in a worthy manner? Well, firstly, I believe we need to understand that this meal, communion, has power for both great good and great harm. He says, your meetings are not for better, but for worse, verse 17. It would be better that you didn't gather because your meetings, in another translation, do more harm than good. And he goes on to say, you're despising the body of the Lord. It is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating. It was, it was called an agape feast. But actually, they were not very loving at all. What was supposed to happen is that those with much would bring much and share with those that had little. And so they would have a feast and there would be wonderful sharing and then it would culminate in the Lord's Supper. It would cross. But what was happening here was that the wealthy were bringing their kind of filet mignon and their like cabernet and they were like, well, I brought it, I'm gonna get it. And the guy just got chips, he can just have chips. Agave feast was kind of like a Baptist potluck, you know, but without kind of the potato salad fried chicken. And, and they were just like, well, the wealthy, man, we're gonna gorge ourselves and they even got drunk. Poor was nothing. And so the fault lines between rich and poor, instead of being bridged by love, they were a gaping canyon. He was saying, actually, the very message of the gospel, how God reconciles people across rich and poor, Male and female, Jew and Gentile, actually the divide is getting bigger. This is not the Lord's Supper that you are eating at all. And he goes on to say this, he says, because you are eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, some of you have become sick. Some of you have become weak and others have died. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? Communion should come with a safety warning. And it actually does. It actually does. I don't know, man, I, I don't want to be cheeky, but are we as scared of communion as we are about corona? Do we have that sense of like, whoa, I, I just got to walk carefully here because I don't want to catch this thing. Now we know that this is a table of grace. So when he says 
that you are eating in an unworthy manner. What he's not saying is that some people deserve the table and others don't. This is a table of grace. The invitation is for free. It's a level table. None of us own it. None of us deserve it. Andrew Wilson in his book, Spirit and Sacrament, says, communion is not a congratulatory banquet, banquet for the sinless. It's a sustaining meal for repentant sinners who are hungry and thirsty for righteousness, but know they have fallen short. But when we understand it's an invitation by grace, there are manners. So when he says unworthy manner, think of the word manners. Think of the word etiquette. We go, oh, do we recognize that? Do we recognize that the guests are members of Jesus' very body? And how does that affect our table manners? And I want to ask from this passage, what are worthy manners for this feast of grace? Not just so that we are not harmed, but that we can enjoy the great good in this meal. You know, we've been going to France for about years now. We help plant etiquette crazy and uh man i remember getting to our first meal there and you know i heard that like what you do is it's good manners to actually kiss on the cheek even men and so i'm just going like i'm hosted by a pastor and his wife there and and and, and I'm, i meet him his name's stefan and like we they're inviting us to dinner and and i is it left or right is it left or right and i just went and i ended up kissing him on the neck by mistake you know <laughs> And this guy, he became a good friend. He's like, I learned, I love you, but never kiss a man on the neck, you know? <laughs> bad manners, you know? And then we go into restaurants and, you know, classically, like whether you're South African or American people, and, and, and so you just start moving tables and moving chairs. I remember the, the first restaurant owner just freaks out. He's like, you need chair. I was like, why? He's like, it's my home, my home. You don't put your elbows on the table. You don't order ketchup for your fries. You don't order ranch for the salad. All of those things. Every culture has their table manners. And in the kingdom, there's a culture. And Paul's saying, just eat at home. This is not a time to gorge yourself. This is not actually a meal to fill your stomachs. It's to fill your souls. And if you come and gorge yourselves and you don't wait for those who have less, there's going to be no appetite for feasting on the very body and blood of Jesus. They were not examining themselves. They were not discerning the body. They were eating and drinking judgment on themselves. And of course, this idea of judgment seems very contradictory to the grace of God because we can't. He says, no, no, the Lord is disciplining you. So don't think judgment in terms of you're no longer a Christian. He's saying, actually, he is showing who is doing it with the right manners and who is not. He says, to some degree, there have to be factions between you because some of you are eating rightly and others are not eating worthily at all. We have to understand that the grace of God is not opposed to the fear of God. In the American church, we must understand this because we often think the grace of God cancels out the fear of God. 
but we've just got to do a little bit of scanning of the book of Acts. And you see Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira, where under grace, they were killed. And you just go, okay, I've got to have a category that the Lord can love me, but if I come to Him in an open way. And so when we realize, man, this is an incredible meal. It's a means of grace to me from heaven. And so let me not abuse it, but come with faith-filled reverence. What would worthy table manners be from this passage of Scripture? Well, firstly, worthy table manners would be thankful remembrance. Verse 23, Paul encourages us to look backwards and remember the cross. He says, on the night that Christ was betrayed, he broke bread and gave thanks for it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Every time we come to the table, we look back in thankful remembrance. Can you just pause a little moment? I only saw this this morning when I was praying over my notes. Jesus thanked God for this broken bread, knowing that the broken bread would signify his broken body. Jesus was thanking God that he himself would be torn to shreds for his disciples and he thanked him for it. What love, what savior would do that? Think of a prisoner on death row. Tomorrow you're gonna get the electric chair and you've got your deathbed meal, your final meal. And as you, I mean, the last supper was Jesus' deathbed meal. And he is thanking God for it. Thank you, God, that I'm gonna go to the cross. Was there grief? Of course there was. We saw him in the, in the garden sweating tears of blood. But actually Philippians 2 says, Jesus, for the joy set before him, set his face like flint to the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus was full of joy and thanks that his body would bro be broken for our healing and our reconciliation back to God and each other. And he thanked God for it. When we come to the table, we're not asking God for a new car or for a raise or for a girlfriend. We are thanking God for what he has done. We are picturing in our imagination by faith what he did on that cross. We are allowing it to become real to us again. We are thinking about what his broken body must have felt like, what that crown of thorns must have felt like. We're hearing his words, the last words of Christ on the cross afresh. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It is paid in full. It is finished. And we're hearing them and owning them by faith with thanksgiving. That's the first posture. And the beauty of communion is that what happens is the cross can so easily drift to the suburbs of our lives. But every time we remember with thanksgiving, the cross becomes main street in our lives again. We go, this is where my life comes from. This is where I live. This is where my peace, my dignity, my sanity, my identity, this is where it comes from. And we receive it by faith and our hearts leap with joy and vitality again, amen? we so easily forget. And there's a beauty in remembering again and again and again. My favorite quote, my staff is gonna roll their eyes as I quote 
G.K. Chesterton, only God and children are strong enough to exult in monotony. The father just says to the waves, to the sunset, to the sunrise, do it again, do it again, do it again. Kids say to them in monotony, God, show us again, oh God, show us again how good you are. Show us again how powerful the cross, show us again, Lord God, we've forgotten, show us again. And He's able to open our eyes afresh by His Spirit as we remember again and again. Are you strong enough to exult in monotony? Oh, I've done this before. I wanna tell you the church has been doing this for 2,000 years, time and time and time again, and it's what gives them life. Because as we lent into charismatic Christianity about 15 years ago, one of the reasons why we stopped doing it is like, oh, it just feels religious. It feels so repetitious. And so it kind of became a once a month thing. But actually, the Lord can do incredibly unexpected things as we say, show us again, Lord, show us again. We're just doing what you said we should do. Every remembrance of me, those are the Santa Ana winds blowing on our walls. It's verse 28, let a person examine himself then. And he goes on to say, if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So this is a moment for personal introspection. We look inward. And some of us are fearful of that because we've been in church traditions where it gets very like guilty and condemning. This is not a moment for condemnation. This is a moment for reflection and allowing the Holy Spirit to convict us. Is there any unconfessed sin in my life? Have I settled into patterns of thought or behavior, sins of omission or commission that I'm just trying to justify? And it's a moment just to come back and just say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. This thing has crept up on me. Sometimes you go into community and, and, and your conscience is kind of clear. And then as you sit, you just go, oh gosh, there has been this pattern. And it's an opportunity to apprehend afresh the blood of Christ that, con that, that cleanses us from all sin. There might be a moment where you go, I need to confess this sin to a brother or a sister or husband or wife. And 1 John 1 verse 9 says, actually, if we live in the light by confessing our sin, the blood of Christ cleanses us from sin. Think of introspection, examination, like a medical exam that you go, I mean, you go to a checkup, and this is your spiritual checkup. Just coming and going, God, just keep me healthy. It's a gift to us. So we look backwards in thankful remembrance. We look inwards in personal examination. Then we look outwards in community or communal discernment. And this is an aspect of community and communion that very often we ignore. But Paul says, that we are to discern the body. And he says to them, you do not discern the body. Discerning of the body is not looking inwards, it's opening up our eyes and looking around and going, these people, they are members of Christ himself. I'm discerning, this is not just a friend or an enemy. This is not just a life group leader or a wife or a kid. This person, if they've put their faith in Jesus, is a member of Christ himself. And am I honoring them as a member of Christ? Think of Acts 9 where, the, where, where Saul, Jesus met him on the road to Damascus. 
And this loud booming voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul could have so easily said, but, but Jesus, I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting your church. I think he was too scared to say anything. But actually, there was a theology of the body right there where Jesus was saying, if you touch my people, you touch me because they are members of me. Christ is the head and we are members of his body. He takes personally when we do harm towards his members. And now that's difficult because all of us, if we've been around church for a while, we get hurt, we hurt others, we get bitter, we get offended. Relationships take strain. Often even when there's been forgiveness and repentance, it takes time to reconcile. But to discern the body is to say both within this local body, but in any other church, my attitude towards Christians in any other church, Am I recognizing them? Oh Lord, open my eyes to recognize that they are members of Christ Himself. And even if reconciliation takes time, I refuse to live with unforgiveness or lack of repentance. And actually I'm willing to not go to the table and go and make right with my brother or sister before we go to the table. Communion is not purely personal. It is communal. Oh man, I remember early days hearing that there was a thing that happened in our church where a single guy slept with the wife of a married guy. And I had to sort it out. I just thought this is not gonna go well. This was more than a decade ago. People are not in the church anymore. But I remember just going armed with communion, just going, this is the only thing that's gonna bring any reconciliation. You can imagine, there was shame, there was anger. I mean, the guy wanted to hit the guy, rightfully so. But there was deep, deep repentance. And we ended up up in this office, breaking bread together. And I was just like, oh God, the power of reconciliation. And some of us are in relationships where we just go, there's no ways this can be reconciled. And I just wanna ask you, do you not think that the broken body of Christ that's strong enough to reconcile me to God? I mean, think of the gap between me and God. Talk about irreconcilable differences, right? Do you not think that that same reconciling power is able to reconcile people with seemingly irreconcilable differences, but compared to me and God, like not so much? You just go, oh yeah, it might take years. Sometimes it's taken decades. But Jesus, I am not going to land in a, ver you know what unforgiveness is? It's a verdict about a person. It's a verdict. It's saying, this is who they are and this is how they will be forever. And I just wanna say, man, if you recognize that they are members of Christ, you can't do that. Because essentially what you're saying is Jesus is not strong enough to change them. We were with a couple in the UK. There had been kind of a spat between this leader couple and that leader couple, and we were trying to work it out, et cetera. So the, the guy who was offended, eventually he began to repent. And he was like, I'm sorry, but that guy, he's never gonna change. He's just never gonna change. So his wife just stands up and says, you mean to say you think God can change you, but not him? It's like, whoa, that woman is wise. 
But that's how we think, right? Oh yeah, God can change me, never him, never her. But discerning the body is saying, look, it's not saying, oh, we must be best friends. You might never be best friends, but it's at least saying, even though they have a pattern, if they are members of Christ himself, the same power that changes me can change them. So I will not land in a verdict. You remember two weeks ago, I talked about the thing behind the thing. The thing behind the thing is a divisive spirit. The enemy would love to divide us. He doesn't care what over. Communion is the weapon of our warfare against the thing behind the thing. And we can bring grace with truth. We can say, man, you have disappointed me again and again and again. I see this pattern, etc." But actually you are a member of Christ. So I cannot make a verdict about you. I give you grace and please give me grace. That is the way that the Lord keeps us united. Fourth posture, faith-filled feasting. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he said, this is my body, which is for you. He doesn't just say, just remember me. He says, my very body is for you. Now I want to bring us very briefly into the different views of the way that the body and blood of Christ, different views of the way that is expressed to us. Because, I mean, when Paul says, the body and blood is a participation. We've got to say, well, this is more than remembrance. Now, very quickly, transubstantiation is one of them. That's the Catholic view that the elements in essence are changed into the body and blood of Christ. I just want to say this is a tradition, but that's not clear in the word. That's not what Paul says in this passage. And then there's consubstantiation, and that's Martin Luther, where he says, Christ's body is truly present within the elements. So think of the presence of Christ like water within a sponge. And so the bread remains the bread, but actually somewhere within the bread, there's the water of Christ's presence that is squeezed out to us. That's consubstantiation. And then there's the memorial view, which is Zwingli. Remember, where it's like, no, it's nothing except a symbol of remembrance. Now, you might have come from all those traditions, but John Calvin's is for me what is truest to the word, and he just calls it spiritual presence, where he, he said, the elements render to us the presence of Jesus and his benefits. The Spirit dynamically raises up the church and Jesus descends to the people in communion. So there's nothing particularly mystical about the wheat cracker or the grape juice, whether it's gluten-free or not, whether it's like bread or whether it's flat. But actually what happens is mysteriously the Spirit expresses the presence of God as we partake by faith. It's not magic. Actually, as we partake by faith, we participate in the very body and blood of Jesus. Doesn't mean that I have to finish off all of the grape juice that you didn't finish off. It means that you come and you feast by faith. 
Remember in John 6, where Jesus fed the 5,000 and then He came and He said, no, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have no part of me. But if you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you will abide in me. And all the disciples, I mean, the crowd scattered, all the disciples said, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, in the body and the blood, there are words of eternal life. There's the very dynamic presence of God by His Spirit. So we come feasting by faith. Let me land with this one verse in verse 25, that we look backwards, we look inwards, we look outwards, we look upwards, feasting by faith, but then finally we, we look forwards. He says, verse 25, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. This is amazing. That communion is a prophetic meal. It's looking forwards. It's longing for the return of Christ. Revelations 19 says, one day the bride, the church will be caught up with Jesus, the bridegroom, and they will feast together at the wedding supper of the lamb in heaven. <laughs> that was kind of a yawn and an amen at the same time. But thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> tired of this life. I hope you're not tired of this sermon. <laughs> Communion is a meal for believers. It's not an open table. It's an open invitation by grace. But you have to accept Jesus' invitation to that meal before you get an invitation to this meal. This meal is a little prophetic glimpse of the eternal feast that we will have forever with Jesus, with the best wine and the best food. And Jesus Himself says, I have been saving myself until that time. He's not taking a drop of alcohol. He's keeping the best wine in the best cellar and we will drink it with our bridegroom forever. And so today I wanna to invite you to accept His invitation to that table and then join us at this table. It makes no sense to come to this table. You will eat and drink judgment on yourself if you don't do it, remembering the cross with thanksgiving. But if you can, even if your life is full of mess, that doesn't matter. We come as we are by faith, thanksgiving and remembrance. I just wanna say, man, as we feast at this table and we're gonna do it now, it fuels our mission. <laughs> We proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. Not just we look forward to Him coming. Yes, we do. We proclaim His death. In other words, you go, man, this meal is so amazing. It's life. It's unity. It's sustenance. It's peace to me. I don't want to eat alone. Brett McCracken, who's a foodie, one of our elders, told me about a bakery in Paris called Dupin. He said, you've got to go here. It's the best bakery in Paris. It serves these croissants that are like, they call them escargot. It's a twirly little thing full of butter. And, and, and then it's got pistachios and chocolate, the best. It's green and dark. It looks like a snail, but it's amazing. So I took our whole advanced team there. It was amazing. We went back every, every morning. 
Then we took our sister, our sister, my daughter and my wife, my sister, my bride. And, uh, and I said, we've got to go to Japan. We traipsed all across the city to get to Japan. You know, if you find an eating place that's amazing, you will not keep it to yourself. I posted it all over Instagram. Now a bunch of you wanna go to Paris. But this meal is a meal that satisfies our very souls. So as we go, can we go saying, oh Lord, I'd love for my friend, my colleague, my sister to, to eat and drink with me. And then man, imagine one day we will eat and drink with him forever. And as we invite people to Thanksgiving table and Christmas table, we go, oh God, this is great, this turkey. But boy, when we eat here of the body and blood of Jesus, we will, we will hunger no more. We will thirst no more. And so I hope that it fuels a sense of mission. All right, we are gonna go to the table now. I want us to go quietly, please, as the musicians play. And as we go, we're not gonna chat. We're gonna examine ourselves and we're gonna discern the body and we're gonna engage our imagination saying, oh Jesus, I wanna hear those words. It is finished again. I wanna receive them by faith. And some of us perhaps need to stay in our seats for a while just doing business with Jesus because there's been some wrestle. Oh man, I've got this sin, but I'm quite enjoying it. You stay, you stay, do business with Jesus. You can join the back of the queue. They'll, it'll go on for a few minutes, I promise you. Some of you need to grab a friend where there's been a strained relationship and just say, hey man, can we just talk and pray for a while? I don't wanna eat and drink unworthily. I wanna discern the body, I'm sorry, I forgive you. That happened with me two weeks ago. Someone came and just said, man, I, I've really been struggling with something you did, please made communion so much more meaningful. And then we're gonna come back to our seats, we're gonna stand, and with the bread and with the juice, we are, and, uh, and then we're gonna partake. We're gonna share in the very life of Jesus. So let's come to the four tables, four corners, and then come back to our seats as the band lead us. Go for it.
We're going to get these words up where it says, leader, I will speak. It says, people, you speak, and then we'll speak all together at the end. We're going to break bread together and sing. With thankful hearts, we break this bread to share in the body of Christ. Every time we drink this cup, every time we eat this bread, every time we eat this bread and drink this cup, together, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world. Have mercy on us. Jesus, bearer of our sins, have mercy on us. Bread of life, sustainer of your church, give us unity. Jesus, redeemer of the world, give us peace.